We uh, began three weeks ago a series on the Gospel of Mark. We're going to spend 26 weeks on the Gospel of Mark. And so this is the fourth sermon in that series. And in the whole series, throughout the whole series, we're trying to answer two basic questions. Who is Jesus? And what does it mean to follow him? Okay? Now, Jesus' first words that are recorded in the Gospel of Mark are, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. Repent and believe this good news. Good news about a king who has come to establish God's kingdom. And then what happens is that Jesus just erupts into action. And throughout all the rest of the chapter 1 of Mark, you see Jesus doing all kinds of things. Uh, people are being healed. Lepers are being cleansed. Uh, demons are being exercised from people. People are being freed from all the stuff that bind them. There's all kinds of stuff happening. It's good news, and good news attracts a crowd. It's good news, but it's not good news for everybody. In Mark chapter 2, what you see is the beginning of conflict between Jesus and the religious authorities. And they, so... What's their problem with Jesus? Well, you start to get a sense as you walk through chapter 2 together. Hannah Larson preached on chapter 2 last week. It was a great sermon. If you haven't heard it, it's worth going back to. Uh, but uh, let me just try to summarize uh, what I think is going on in chapter 2. In uh, Mark 2, verse 7, the, the, the Pharisees, so throughout, I'm going to focus on four questions they answer, that they ask in chapter 2. Uh, but they ask Jesus, who can forgive sins but God alone? What happens is that Jesus uh, heals this guy who's paralyzed. But before he heals him physically, he says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. And when the religious authorities hear that, they just kind of freak out. What? Did we just hear him right? Did he say that? Because everyone knows only God can forgive sins. This man, this man is claiming to be God. And they just, they're not happy with that. They, they cannot accept that claim. And then moving on a bit in verse 216, and they ask a question again, why is Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners? And there's kind of a subtext going on here. What they're really saying is, okay, he claims to be the Messiah of God. He claims to be God's sent one, God's anointed one. But how can he claim to be the Messiah and not spend his time with us? Why is he spending time with them, tax collectors, sinners, scum, instead of spending time with us, the, the, the religious people, the spiritual people in Israel? They feel snubbed. They're not used to feeling snubbed. It makes them angry because they like being the center of attention and approval and applause. And they're not getting that from Jesus. And then Mark 2.18, they ask another question. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Why don't they fast? Everybody knows it's spiritual people, spiritual people like us, who fast 104 times a year. 
Everybody knows that fasting is what make, is, is important if you're spiritual, if you want to please God. And they, they have all kinds of religious observances that they keep. Things like Sabbath keeping and fasting and a whole bunch of stuff. But here's the thing. What Jesus accuses them of, not here in Mark specifically, but throughout the Gospels, is, uh, is actually putting on a religious show. He accuses them of hypocrisy. You see, for the Pharisees, for the religious leaders, they saw these kinds of religious observances, observances as a competition. They saw religion as a competition. It was a way to prove to God and to others that they were better than other people and therefore deserved God's favor. It wasn't a response to God's goodness. It was a a way to look good before others. And Jesus knows that. And he calls them on it. He says a couple things to them in chapter 2. First, he says, my disciples aren't fasting because I'm with them. And because I'm with them, it's a time of celebration. We're celebrating. God likes celebration. And then the second reason is because I'm not here to prop up your old religious system, the way you guys do religion. I'm not propping that up. I'm here to bring something new. And he tells a kind of a little parable that you, you don't put new wine into old wineskins because if you put new wine in old wineskins that have already been uh, expanded, what happens is the, the new wine just makes them blow apart. It breaks them apart. What Jesus is really saying, I'm here to blow up your system. I'm doing it, and I'm not, I'm not here to prop up the system. I'm, I'm bringing something new. And when they hear that, they don't like that at all because, you see, the old system's working for them. It keeps them at the top of the pile. Top of the heap. New is not good. Old is what we want. We know how to make old work for us. And then in 2.24, they ask the ultimate question for them. Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And the background there is Jesus' disciples are going through a grain field. They pick some grains off the stock and it's a Sabbath day. So they accuse them of working on a Sabbath, which you're not supposed to do. And Jesus kind of unwraps that as well and says, you know, you've got that wrong. You've got Sabbath keeping wrong too. He says says that the Sabbath is not made for human beings. That the Sabbath is made for human beings, rather. Human beings aren't made for the Sabbath. The, The Sabbath isn't made to prove yourself it's not, to, it's not to fit some external standard. The Sabbath is for rest. It's for refreshment. It's for celebration. And then he really takes them off and he says, and I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I get to t- say what the Sabbath's about, not you. So they are furious they're just absolutely furious by the end of chapter two they're really ripping furious with jesus now that takes us into chapter three which i'm about to read now i'm gonna it's on page 708 of your pew bibles by the way i'm I'm about to read it out loud but as i'm reading it 
Try to read it through the lens of a trial. There's a trial going on here. There are three accusations made against Jesus, and Jesus is going to respond to those allegations by he himself asking questions of the Pharisees. So three accusations, three questions. See it as kind of a trial, okay? So Mark chapter 3, I'm going to read the whole chapter. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them, some of them meaning the religious people, some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Stubborn here has a sense of refusing to believe. At their stubborn heart said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. Let me stop here for a sec. For the rest of the Gospel of Mark, there's only one other time that Jesus goes back to the synagogue. He'd been in the synagogue a, long, a lot of times up to this point, but from then on, he only goes back to the synagogue once when he's in Nazareth, his hometown, where he gets a bad reception. What Mark is telling us here is that Jesus is withdrawing from, from kind of the religious establishment of the Jews. This is, again, an expression of Jesus' Uh, bringing something new in because the old isn't working the way God wants it to work. He withdraws from the synagogue, goes and makes the lake, the, the lake region of Galilee, the center of his ministry. When they heard about all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomea, and the regions across the Jordan around Tyre and Sidon. Large, massive area, lots of different people coming. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Strong verbs used here. Picture this, picture this scene. It's Black Friday. Crowds have been amassing since like, you know, one o'clock in the morning. The gates are about to open. The, uh, the, the door is about to open at some place. It's got some good deal, you know. It's not a bookstore. You know, and, um, and you know what happens when the, when the gates open or the doors open, right? They just start surging, and they can get scary. That's what Mark's saying. The people are surging around Jesus. They just want to get close. They want to touch him. They want to get what he has, and it gets a little scary. So Jesus tells his disciples, get a boat ready. Let's go out in the lake a little bit so I can talk to him from there so that everybody gets safe, nobody gets hurt. Right? Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You're the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. 
Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus. Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went out to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. That word, take charge, is used later in Mark's gospel several times, all with the sense of arresting Jesus. It's taking custody of Jesus. It's a strong word. They're out, they're out to pull him away from where he is. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said he's possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons he is driving, driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Jesus has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So, verses 1 to 6, the beginning. Jesus goes into a synagogue. There's a man in there with a withered hand, a shriveled hand. The place is crowded, and it's a tense scene. Jesus' accusers are there. Jesus' critics are there. And they're just waiting to see what Jesus will do. They're hoping Jesus will heal this injured man, not because they care about him, but because they want an excuse to accuse him, to accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. And if you want, you can put it this way. Their accusation is something like this. This guy, Jesus, that you're following, he's actually a bad Jew. He's not religious enough. He breaks the Jewish law. When Jesus 
asked this man to stand up in front of everybody, you can, you can imagine those religious leaders, they're just, they're just licking their chops. They're thinking, he's fallen into our trap. Here's the excuse that we need. Now, Jesus knows that this is a trap. But he, he sees this guy, he sees this man with a, with a shriveled hand, a withered hand, and he can't just kind of walk by him. He can't just walk away. The guy needs help, and Jesus wants to help him. He wants to help him, not just for the man's sake, but also for the sake of all the people who are gathered there. He wants the people to understand that what, it, what it really means to be God's people in the world. He wants them to know what God is looking for from his people. So Jesus asks a question. He looks at his critics. He says, which is lawful to do on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to do good or to do evil? Is it lawful to save life or to kill? What Jesus is doing is challenging both the hypocrisy of those religious leaders and also their understanding of, the, of what the Sabbath is all about, what God is all about. See, here's the thing. These religious leaders made God to be all about religious activity. Do the right things and you make God happy. But God isn't all that interested in religious activity. He's not interested in, at all, actually. He doesn't care about religious activity for its own sake. What God is interested in is people. He's interested in their well-being. He's interested in their wholeness and in their holiness. And too often, religious activity has almost nothing to do with wholeness and holiness. It has to do with pride and ego. Why did God give the Sabbath in the first place? It was meant to be a day of rest. Not a day of proving yourself to God, but a day of rest, a day of celebration, a day of refreshing. And what Jesus adds here is that Sabbath keeping is not about doing nothing. It's about doing good. It's about doing good. And doing good is not about following rules. It's about receiving and celebrating God's goodness, about extending mercy and grace to others, about meeting people's needs, about showing God's love. That's what the Sabbath is about. It's about coming together to celebrate God's goodness and to share it. And part of, part of, part of being able to do that is seeing people the way Jesus sees them. We need to start seeing people the way Jesus sees them, see the world the way Jesus sees the world. And then to do for them the kinds of things that Jesus does, even if those things don't look very religious.
The message translation of James, the book of James, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, puts it this way. Anyone who sets himself up as religious by talking a good game is self-deceived. This kind of religion is hot air and only hot air. Real religion, the kind that passes muster before God the Father, is this. Reach out to the homeless and loveless in their plight and guard against corruption from the godless world. Jesus' kingdom is good news because it's not about getting our acts together and measuring up to other people's ideas of what's right and wrong. It's not about putting ourselves or other people in a religious straitjacket. It's about believing God is good, about receiving his love, and about extending his love to everyone we meet. That's what it's about. If we want to follow Jesus, truly follow Jesus, we need to see people and treat people the way Jesus does. We need to make that our priority, not worrying about whether we measure up to other people's ideas of what's religious. So Jesus asks the Pharisees a question. What's the Sabbath for? Is the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? Is it to save life or to kill? Jesus asks the question, and what does he do? He heals this man. He restores him. What do the religious leaders do? They leave, and they go out and plot how to kill Jesus. The religious leaders just got schooled. They set a trap for Jesus, and the trap came, bang, came back and sprang on them. And they're furious about it. They're just furious with Jesus at this point. They want to kill him. So they go and plot, and they have to figure out how they're gonna, what they're going to do next. But they have a massive problem. You see, everybody knows that Jesus is a miracle worker. He's doing all kinds of miracles. People are excited about him. He's healing people. He's cleansing lepers. He's... Uh, driving demons out of people. He's doing all kinds of things, and people see it. So they can't just say Jesus isn't doing any of this stuff. Everybody knows that Jesus is doing all this kind of really amazing stuff that no one has ever done before. There's something special about Jesus. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. So how do they explain that away? They can't say he's not doing it. So what what do they do? They do what a lot of people in power do when they're feeling threatened. They start questioning the character and the motives for Jesus' acts. So essentially what they say is, he's doing all this stuff, but he's really a bad man. He's doing it in the power of Satan. He's really a tool of Satan. He's casting out these demons in Satan's power. He's doing it in an unholy power. He has an impure spirit. That's the charge. Now, I don't know. I really doubt that they actually believe what they're saying. I think they're just looking for reason to explain away Jesus' miracles so that they can kill him at a later point. 
and get away with it. That's what people do when they're, they do character assassination when they can't answer any other way. So again, Jesus asks a question. Okay, let's, let's talk about this. How can Satan drive out Satan? Why would Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that king, kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house can, can't stand. If Satan has risen up against himself, he won't stand. So you get the logic here. Satan will not fight against self. That's just stupid. But there's still a question of how is Jesus doing what he's doing? How is Jesus able to cast out demons? So Jesus tells a story. He tells a story about a strong man, a strong man who gets, uh, who gets tied up and then gets robbed. His house gets plundered. Now what's the story about? Who's the strong man? It's clear in the context that, Jesus, that Satan is a strong man, but Satan, this strong man, gets tied up. And then he gets plundered. Now in order for a strong man to be tied up, a stronger man has to come. Jesus is the stronger man, is what Jesus is saying. I'm the one who's come to destroy the works of the devil. Now what about this plunder stuff? What's being plundered? The people that Satan has captured, has enslaved. Jesus is freeing them. He's freeing them from their sicknesses. He's freeing them from the, the, the demonic spirits in them. He's freeing people. He's pulling them out of Satan's kingdom, if you will, and he's drawing them to himself. Satan is being plundered. The, the, the kingdom of hell, if you will, is being plundered. It's, uh, the, the gates are being sprung open. At a later point, Jesus would say something like, when he talks about his church, he would say, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. We're seeing Jesus doing that now. He's breaking down the gates of hell, pulling people out. Not the literal hell post-death, but, but the hell that, that, Jesus, that Satan makes of lives here on earth right now. Jesus is a stronger one, stronger than the devil. That's how he's casting out demons. Now, why does Jesus then bring up this thing about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? There are people who drive themselves crazy asking that question. Have I, have I committed the un unforgivable sin? And here's, here's my answer to that. If you're worried about it, you haven't committed it. If you're worried about it, you haven't committed it. So what is Jesus talking about? Jesus is doing all this amazing stuff. The religious leader is saying he's doing it through a demonic spirit. Jesus is actually doing it because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. So what the, what the religious leaders are actually saying is that, is that this Holy Spirit that's in Jesus is a demonic spirit. They're blaspheming against the Spirit itself. They're saying Jesus is doing what he's doing, not because of the Holy Spirit, but because of the demonic spirit. They're disparaging, they're, they're blaspheming against the, the, the power that's actually at work in and through Jesus. 
Now, what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit is the one who draws us to Jesus. And Jesus is the only one who's, who has the power and the authority to forgive sins. People who reject the work of the Holy Spirit reject the only person who can draw them to Jesus. They reject Jesus. They, they, they reject any, the only one who can help them, the only one who can forgive them. They cut themselves off from the goodness, the power, the salvation of God. That's what makes blasphemy of the Holy Spirit the unforgivable sin. If you reject the Holy Spirit, you reject any possibility of being forgiven. Now, not as a one-time act. It's not just that, you know, it's not just you say, I hate you, God, kind of thing, and you do it. It's, it's a constant pattern. It's not a one-time, it's not a hasty one-time act that you regret later. It's something you do again and again and again and again and again. Uh, the text uses uh, present active indicative tenses, which means it's an ongoing, present ongoing action. So not a one-time act. It's a, it's a, it's a pattern, an ongoing pattern that cuts you off from the forgiveness of God. So the scribes begin by accusing Jesus of blasphemy. Jesus ends up by accusing them of blasphemy, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So they just got schooled again. Now, this third accusation comes, and this one is harder to understand because it comes not from the religious leaders, but it comes from Jesus' own family. And implicitly, what the accusation is, Jesus is a bad son. He disrespects his family. We're told in verses uh, 20, 21, Jesus enters a house, again a crowd gathers, he and his disciples aren't even able to eat. His family hear, hears about what's going on, hears about this. The Greek text doesn't tell us what the this is. You have to sort of pick it out from a the context. They go to take charge. They go to arrest him, basically, pull him out, bring him back home. They think he's lost his mind. Now, why do they think he's lost his mind? Is it because he has poor eating habits, because he's not practicing adequate self-care? I don't think so. I think it's because of all the stuff that Jesus has been doing, and particularly, it's what he had just done. Go back to verse 12. We're told that Jesus went up on a mountain, and then he called to him 12 people whom he named apostles. And everybody in that culture understands what's going on. This is a, a symbolic and a, and a political act. You see... It reminds people of Moses going up on the mountaintop, of God establishing covenant with the nation of Israel, making them a nation, raising up the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's clear to a lot of them that what Jesus is really saying is that I am the Messiah and I am raising up a new leadership in Israel. This is a symbolic and political act. 
And if you thought the, the Pharisees, the religious establishment, were ticked off before then, they, they've hit the roof now because they know that Jesus is saying you're all frauds and you're going to be replaced. You have been replaced. Now, Jesus does all this publicly. So that puts Jesus in danger. It puts the people close to him in danger. So they're thinking, we, his family's thinking, we've got to get him out of here before something bad happens to him or to us. And, you know, he thinks he's God. He's got these delusions of grandeur right now. We've we got to stop him before something really, really bad happens. In John's Gospel, chapter 7, we're told that in verse, chapter 7, verse 5, we're, we're told that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. So you would think that if anybody would believe in him, it would be his family, but they don't at this point. Later on, they do believe, but they don't right now. They just think he's lost his mind. And they're, they're probably concerned about him. They're probably embarrassed about him. They're probably afraid for him and for themselves. So they just go, go to get them. But the point is, they're not, they're not buying in to his agenda. They're not buying into his calling. So they come to where Jesus is. He's in this room, people around. They come to where Jesus is. They stand on the outside, and they send someone out to get him. They summon him, and they expect he's going to obey them and come because that's what, that's what you do in that culture. Family's everything. Family ties are, are important. Loyalty, your parents is important. They expect him to come out, but Jesus doesn't come out to them. And for that culture, that's scandalous. That's just flat-out scandalous. The family bond's tight. It's important. And Jesus isn't doing what he's supposed to do as a good son. And everybody sees, so they're embarrassed now, too. He's out of his mind. He's a bad son. It, this is not good. Now, Mark does something interesting here. He uses a literary technique called an intercalation. An intercalation is a story within a story. It's kind of like a sandwich. You start a story taught like a top bread, then you then just partway through, you don't finish the story, you start a story, then you bring another story in, and you tell that story, and then you finish the first story. So it's like two stories kind of together. And you do that as, as a literate, and Mark does that a number of times, so be looking for that as we keep going through the Gospel of Mark. He does that a bunch of times. What the, the, two, the, the intercalation is meant so that the two stories help to interpret one another. And Mark is using it to make a theological point here. What he's trying to say with these seemingly dissimilar, disconnected stories is this. Both the religious authorities and even Jesus' own family reject his, Jesus' authority and the legitimacy of his call from God. Both of them try to stop Jesus from doing God's will. Both of them reject his claim to be Messiah. Both of them are blind and stubborn in their hearts. In the face of what should be Overwhelming, unassailable evidence. Now, instead of acknowledging his mother and siblings and coming out to them, Jesus 
then asks the questions of people sitting around him. Who are my mother and my brothers? And Jesus continues, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother, my brother, my sister. What he's doing is he's giving a redefinition of family. He's saying that there's a new family, the family of God. And that family is what counts. And you get into that family by doing God's will. When you come to Christ, you, come, you become a part of his family. Now, Jesus, in saying this, is not dismissing, he's not disrespecting his physical mother and brother. We can see all kinds of evidence for his respect for his mother throughout the Gospels. He's saying we are to love our families. We are to honor our parents. So that's in the Ten Commandments. Honor your mother and father and your days will be long on the earth. That's in the Ten Commandments. It's a big deal. It's important to honor your families. But it's not your primary lo- Your family, your biological family is not your primary loyalty. Your parents aren't, aren't your ultimate authority. God comes first. Jesus is doing what his father wants him to do. Who is my mother? Who is my brother? Those who do the will of God. Those who see people with the eyes of Jesus. Those who love like Jesus loved. Those who regardless of their biological relationship capture the spirit of sacrificial love that Jesus embodied and loved the people around them. So to go back to our two basic questions. Who is Jesus? In chapter 3, we learn that Jesus is the one who sees people and responds to their needs, even at great cost to himself. He's the one who always does good and who saves. He's the one who has conquered the devil and freed people, freed the devil, freed people from the devil's imprisonment, from the devil's oppression. He's the one who seeks God first above all. And he's the one who invites us into his family and who shows us what it means to live as God's children, as God's people. That's who Jesus is. What does it mean for us to follow him? It means first and foremost to be with Jesus, as verse 12 says, and to sit around him, to be with him, to hear him, to listen to him, let him rub off on us, as it says in verse 34. We're supposed to be with Jesus and become like Jesus and do what Jesus says to do good because doing good is the Father's will. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.